0: While you're turning in your Bibles to the book of Second Samuel, chapter number twenty-three, I had hoped to preach a message this morning on the subject of truth, and uh, I, I spent quite a bit of time this past week reading and studying and preparing. And it's still—I um, just wasn't satisfied that it was that it was ready. And so uh, the Lord kind of steered my direction. Uh, a little bit differently, and um, I believe that perhaps maybe it's providential because, you know, if you look back, the past year has been a very interesting year, and while we have, I believe, personally have done fairly well as a church through uh, all of the um, pandemic and so forth, I, I do believe that there is a danger of what I am coming to call COVID complacency that has just crept into our hearts and to uh, just our character, to be quite honest with you. Things have been so different. And, you know, uh, when COVID first happened and we were in lockdown and we, you know, everybody was basically said to stay home. I know personally, I found some enjoyment in that. I know I read articles about some families having a lot of marital problems because of spending too much time together. But in in all honesty, I enjoyed that part of COVID. I was able to relax, uh, be at home. I was able to get a lot of projects done that had been just piling up over the years and just seemed to never be able to get to it. But uh, I, I have noticed that there is a COVID complacency almost a laziness of spirit that has crept into people. How many of of you have noticed that almost everywhere you look, there's a sign, a billboard, or an ad for Help Wanted? It's everywhere. And then you talk to people, you talk to somebody at the grocery store, and they say, you know what, There's certain things we just can't get because they're just not putting it out. And the reason they're not putting it out is because they don't have enough workers to package it and ship it and do all the different things that needs to be done. And so it is just kind of a trickle-down or trickle-up effect from COVID. And I do wish that our government would stop paying people to stay home. People that are able-bodied and, you know what, we need to get back to work. And I hope and pray that the stopping and, and, and listen, I'm not talking about people that cannot find a job that are in need of help. I, you know, I personally, I don't believe that that was the government's responsibility to take care of the welfare of individuals. I believe that that is family and community that should be taking care of that. And the bottom line is family and community would take care of it if there wasn't uh, this big, huge safety net that's fed by taxpayers as well as massive debt that's eventually going to cause everything to collapse. It, it, it has to. Uh, you know, history proves that out. And so there's a lot of things that are broken in the system and things that you and I cannot fix. But I will say this. I don't believe that the government or a pandemic or any circumstance should be something that we blame for a lapse of character, especially godly Christian spiritual character that God expects His children. We've got to rise above it. And while I am patriotic, and I think that patriotism is a good thing, have you noticed how that the entire, and I believe it's the spirit of the Antichrist, is trying to do everything he can to eliminate patriotism. Why is that? Because he is wanting to set up one world government. And you're not going to get a one world government if you have American patriotism. And so he is tearing that down at a foundational level. And if he continues to tear that down, the next, you know, right now there's a little bit of fighting going on over you know some of the ideology that's being presented in public education and so forth there's some there's some fussing going on there's some people standing up and speaking out against it but what's going to be the case next generation as they discontinue little by little winning over this classroom and that classroom and this school board and that school board eventually there's not going to be any patriotism because Americans are going to be taught a revisionist viewpoint of American history. And so I am a patriot, and I appreciate our country. I love my country. But as I've always said, my primary loyalty is and should always be to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm an American, but way more important than that, I'm a child of God. And Jesus Christ is my Savior. And if you're saved, then we owe our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. So no matter what's going on in our nation, we need to rise above it, and we need to be God's children, and we need to behave like we are God's children. The message that I'm going to present to you today is a a revised portion of a message that I preached here uh, about 14 years ago, actually. Uh, the very first week that me and my family traveled out here and we preached to, uh, the church family here at Temple Baptist Church, uh, this was, this is a part of one of those messages that goes all the way back to there. Maybe perhaps some of you that were here back in those days, you'll recall the message, uh, perhaps maybe you won't. Second Samuel chapter number 23. And uh I'd like to I, I plan on starting with verse 15, but I, I think it'd be good to read verse number 14. It says, And David was then in an hold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. So you have the Philistines that are basically they are they've got David kind of boxed in, and he's in an hold. And in verse 15 it says, And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Keep in mind, David grew up in Bethlehem. Uh, the other day, um, the day before yesterday, um, I took my wife up into the mountains. We went up into Boone and, um, and Blowing Rock, and she just needed to get away, and she's from the mountains, and it's always good for her Mental state to just go and relax and be in the mountains, and we found a little lake right nearby, blowing rock, and had a nice little walking path to just go around it and we 're walking and it just seemed like every ten or twelve steps she would uh, she would uh, smell something from a plant and not necessarily knowing what plant or what tree that that aroma is coming from. But it just really thrilled her because it brought back memories of childhood living in the mountains. And she'd go, do you smell that? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and so and we'd, we'd go a few more steps and she'd go, oh, that smells so good. And, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, you know, we just had a little bit of fun with it. But, you know, those those aromas just bring back those pleasant memories of her childhood. And I believe that David, who is going through a pretty tough time now, he's in a hold. He can't go to Bethlehem because it's occupied by the Philistines. And he doesn't have enough soldiers to go and overcome and do what he wants to do. And so he's just thinking, man, I wish I had a that that water from that well of Bethlehem. He's just thinking, that was the best water. And you know, sometimes we have these good memories of our childhood, and then we go back and revisit them when we're older, and we're kind of like, what was the big deal? But it was at the time. And so David is longing for just a drink of that water from the well of Bethlehem. Watch verse 16. And the three mighty men break through the host of the Philistines, and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem. Now, please just join me in my imagination, in my mind, because I just feel almost certain that maybe this is kind of the way that it happened. Here here, here, David is, and he's hiding in this cave. And if you could see him just kind of over by the wall of the cave and there, Goliath's sword is leaning up against the rock and David's sitting on a, on, on a big rock and he's got his sword leaning up against the wall and he's pulled out his harp and he's there and he's just kind of playing and he's praying and he's thinking and, you know, some, some musical note or some kind of a thought just brings him back to the good old days and, The taste of that water of Bethlehem. And David wasn't necessarily talking to anyone. He was just talking maybe to the Lord, maybe just talking to himself. Oh, that I could have a drink of that water of the well of Bethlehem. A few feet away is the campfire, and if you could see that these three mighty men, one of them has got a stick, and he's poking the coals in the fire and messing with the fire, trying to keep it going, and the other mighty man, man, he's sitting there being warmed by the fire, and he's got his sword out, and he's got a stone, and he's just sharpening the edge of that sword, getting ready for the next day and being prepared for the battle. The other one, he's over, I don't know what he's doing. He's just hanging out with his friends. Amen? That's what mighty men do. They hang around with other mighty men. And they hear David. And whatever they're doing, they both just immediately stop. And they make eye contact with one another. Not a word is said. These loyal, mighty men, they just make eye contact with one another and as if to think it, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And the other is like, yeah, I'm thinking what you're thinking. And the other is like, let's go do it. Never said a word, just that glance. And they all knew what they were going to do. And so when David's not looking, they slip out. And they go and they break through that garrison of the Philistines. Now that means there's some battle going on. Perhaps maybe there was some Philistines that were slain as they broke through in order to get to that well. And they fill up their container That bottle, if you will, with that water. And then they fight their way back out through that garrison of the Philistines. And who knows how many injuries or deaths of the Philistines were caused by these three mighty men. I just have a feeling that they didn't sneak in there. Because they didn't have to. And they bring that water back to David. And look with me at verse number 16, and the three mighty men break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of an appeal for zeal. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these three mighty men, the heart that they had toward King David. Lord, a man that was anointed to be king, but had not yet sat on the throne of your kingdom. I thank you, Lord, for these men's zeal, their sacrifice, their passion, their enthusiasm. And I pray, Father, that you would bless us today and help me, Father, to be your spokesman, as we present these Bible truths. And Father, I pray that You would stir our hearts out of COVID complacency. Help us, God, to get our passion and our zeal, our enthusiasm, back on the things of God where it belongs. We ask for Your blessings. If anyone's here today without Jesus Christ, I pray that You'd speak to their heart and they would see their need as lost sinners. May they see their need that Jesus Christ met that need on Calvary's cross. Help me, Father, to exhort and edify your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. An appeal for zeal. What exactly do we mean by zeal? I'm sure that most of us have some idea, some kind of a concept of what zeal is, but, you know, if you do a word study on the word zeal. And you go beyond just Webster's 1828, and there's a lot of good definitions for the word zeal. But I'll tell you the one that I like is the word study. If you trace it back to the, the Greek word zeos. Now, I'm not a Greeker here, and I'm not going to pretend or try to impress you like I know anything about Greek, because I don't. I got this from the Strong's Concordance. But I'll tell you what I liked about it. When you look that word zeos up, it has something to do with something being on fire. And you know, we talk about being on fire for God, don't we? You know what that is? Being on fire for God is being zealous for God. It's being passionate. It's being enthusiastic. William Burkett, in his expository notes, said zeal is not so much one uh, of, excuse me, zeal is not so much one affection as the intense degree of all the affections. You take all of our affections and you put them all into one central thing and zeal for God. That's the kind of zeal that these three mighty men had. When you think about it, these three mighty men, number one, the act was self-initiated. David didn't tell them to go do it. They didn't wait to be told. You know, if you are zealous, then you don't sit around and if something is supposed to be done and needs to be done or you want to do it, you're not going to sit around and wait for somebody to tell you what to do. You're going to see the need. You're going to roll up your sleeves and you're going to get her done. Why? Because you're zealous for accomplishing things for God. These three mighty men didn't need an order. And then, and you know, I'll tell you something else that when when people, I, I think that subordinates should obey orders, but I tell you what, there is a need for people with zeal that know their leader. Listen, if you work for, if you have a supervisor, a boss, an owner that you work for, and you are subordinate to them, you ought to figure out what they want and how they want it. And when you see a need and when you see an opportunity to accomplish what you know that they already want, then you got to be careful because sometimes you can get out ahead of the boss. You can do something that they no, I'm, this isn't the time and you got to get to know that boss. But you ought to study your boss and figure out how that you can get things done for them that they don't even have to tell you to get done. And if they give you an assignment, then don't expect them to tell you every single move to make in order to accomplish that. Figure it out. Be zealous. Be creative. I've said many, many times the term diligence in a nutshell simply means getting the job done and getting it done right. Whatever it takes. That's what diligence is all about. And we will not be diligent unless we are first zealous. We need to be self-initiated. I see also that these three mighty men were willing to stick their neck out. And you know, a lot of God's people are not willing to stick their neck out. I mean, people say, okay, I'll let the preacher take the hits. I'll let my parents take the, I'll let them be the bad guy, but I just don't want to get involved. How many times have I heard people say, I'm just wanting to mind my own business and not get involved. And it sounds so, it just sounds so ethical. But in reality, it's not ethic, it's not ethics. It's cowardice. It's like, I don't want to stick my neck out. I don't want somebody to dislike me. Oh, let them dislike the, the boss. Let them dislike, whoever made the rule, but I'm not going to have somebody dislike me in order to do what is right. That's simply cowardice. These three mighty men were not cowards. They were self-initiated. They were willing to stick their neck out. And I'll tell you something that I think is amazing about these three mighty men, and that is this. I find nowhere in this passage or in the passage that it mentions it in Chronicles, I find nowhere where these men got upset when David didn't respond according to their expectations. Now, they might have flinched a little bit when David poured out that water. But you know what? They believed in their king. They believed in their leader. They understood and they trusted their leader. And when David said, I'm not worthy of this water, they knew he wasn't wasting it. He was pouring it out saying, only God deserves this water. And because of their loyalty and their trust for their leader and because of David's ethics... That trust relationship was solidified. But, you know, you see so many things in in the church and in families and in the workplace where if the person that's in authority, if he doesn't respond the way that the subordinate expected, then all of a sudden now you have a disgruntled and you have contention and you have strife. And the root is just simply people who won't trust or give the benefit of the doubt to the person who is in authority. How many times have I seen people quit church, quit on God because their favorite ministry was canceled or because the pastor made a decision that, hey, we're going this direction. You know what? The last time I checked, there are certain things that are absolute that every believer ought to do. And there's many, many ways to accomplish that. You don't have to have your pet ministry supporting you in that. Look, if you've got a burden, if you've got a burden to reach someone, if you've got a burden to do something, then do it. I don't know if you're with me here this morning. Maybe I'm being too zealous. If you got a burden for something, you don't need everybody to jump on your bandwagon to do it. Well, I've got a burden for reaching this particular ethnic group. You think that you're gonna you're gonna learn how to do it if you go on deputation and raise money and and go through all of that and you're not gonna start doing it until you get uh, over in Asia? No. If you've got a burden for Asians, then start finding Asians here in Statesville. I see him all the time, don't you? I got a burden. I believe that God wants me to go to Mexico. Okay. How many Mexicans are you bringing in to, to, church? I look around. I think, okay, I don't, I don't see him. I don't know where they are. And so these three mighty men, they didn't care whether David, they weren't looking for a bandwagon. They just, and, and so they trusted David and they didn't get upset when he didn't respond according to their expectations. And that brings me, I'm I'm still an introduction, there is certainly the thing uh, called misguided zeal. There's a lot of misguided zeal. Uh, One person said this, zeal is only fit for wise men, but is found mostly in fools. A lot of misguided zeal. Uh, take your Bibles, we're close, so go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel 21, and we're gonna see that Saul had some misguided zeal when it came to the Gibeonites. Now the Gibeonites were those inhabitants of the land, we would call them Canaanites, that made a they 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 tricked Joshua into making a league with them, making a commitment and Joshua and the elders of Israel, they didn't inquire of the Lord. And so they made a commitment to the Gibeonites. Well, here, many, many years later, Saul, as king, he doesn't like these Gibeonites. He wants to get rid of them. And we see here in chapter 21 and verse number 1, it says, Then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered It is for Saul and for his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. Now listen, God wanted the Gibeonites slain until Joshua made that league. And so God honored that league that Joshua made because Joshua was God's man and he was representing God. And so until God says that that league is no longer in force... Saul had no business bypassing that commitment, that contract, if you will. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his, watch this, zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. This is misguided zeal because it's nothing more than just personal ambition. Saul's not doing it for God's people's sake. Saul's not doing it for the Lord's sake. Saul is doing it for his own personal ambition. One person said this, Violent zeal, even for truth, has a 100 to 1 odd to be either petulancy, ambition, or pride. Remember Jehu? When Jehu um, said to, I believe it was Jehoshaphat, maybe not. I I can't remember who he invited into his chariot and he said, come see my zeal for the Lord of hosts. Then he started showing him Jehu had slain all of the family and descendants of Ahab. And nowhere does it necessarily say that God told him to. Jehu just did it out of his zeal. Now, when we do something zealously for God, then that's a good thing. But when we do something zealously for God, we're not like Jehu, come up into my chariot, let me show off what God's done. Let me pat myself on the back and try to impress you with my zeal. What do you have there? You have misguided zeal that has at its motive personal ambition. The next thing about misguided zeal is the Pharisees and the temple. And, you know, the Pharisees were interested in personal gain. I believe financial gain was at their heart. No doubt they were looking for political gain in everything that they did. John chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus has cleared out the money changers from the temple, and He said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence... Make not my father's house and house of merchandise, and his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now, let me confess to you that i'm not a hundred percent sure that this is literally what this text is saying. I used to think that the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up; it was Jesus saying that these Pharisees' zeal is eating me up as a negative type of zeal. I, I think that if you go back to the book of Psalms where it's originally written, I think it's probable that the phrase, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, it's the Lord saying he is zealous of his father's house, and that's the reason that he went in and he cleaned out the money changers. And so keep in mind that the text, I may be... In fact, I'm going to say I'm probably using the text a little bit out of context, but the point is still true. If you study the Pharisees and all of their zeal and their motives, they certainly had misguided zeal, and it was all about their personal gain rather than the glory of God. And then, of course, you have the religious Jews. This is a personal, or a religious pride. In Romans 10, verse number 1, Paul said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. It's like one man said, he said, Zeal without knowledge is like an expedition to a man who is walking in the dark. The Pharisees, they had passion. They had enthusiasm. I mean, they had all, they put all kinds of energy into their religion, but it was misguided because it didn't have the right heart. Folks, it's common, oh so common for men to do the right things for the wrong reasons. Some want attention. Some want glory. And you know what? You've you've got to be very, very careful because people naturally want to follow the man that has charisma, passion, and confidence. Zeal, if you will. All of which can be a product of the carnal nature. Men like this will do something extreme that no one else is doing but seldom do the simple things that everyone else is doing or the things that just generically God says that everyone's supposed to do. They're team players only when they get to be the point guard. If they can't be the star, then you find out they're just not very good team players. Sometimes I wonder if their zeal is only so they can feel superior to others. They talk like they want others to follow, but down deep, they really don't. Some men would knock on a thousand doors per week, but neglect their family. Men like this want to be warriors, but they're just not interested in being soldiers. There's a big difference between the warrior and the soldier. And God, through the Apostle Paul, said that the Christian is supposed to endure hardness as a good soldier. You know, not everybody is the Rambo and the Congressional Medal of Honor. There are some that are called to be out on the front line of battle. But you know what? A lot of us, God didn't intend for us to be out there on the front line of battle. He wanted us, He wants us to be in a supportive role in doing everything we can. You know, the warrior could not be the warrior if there wasn't all of the other things going into it. He has to have supplies. He has to have support. He has to have intel. He has to have direction. There has to be a medic. There has to be all of these different things. And so many people who God says, I want you to be a soldier, and that's just not good enough. And so they go out with misguided zeal and say, I want to be the the warrior when God's just wanting them to be the soldier. Let's take a look now. I've got three points about David's three mighty men that I think uh, should be very helpful in appealing to our zeal. First of all, number one, they had to come to the end of themselves. Listen, these three mighty men did not become zealous when they heard David said, oh, I wish I had some water from the well of Bethlehem. The zeal was already in them when this mission uh, was started and then accomplished. Look with me at 1 Samuel chapter number 22. Go back with me a little bit and let's find out a little bit more about David's mighty men. 1 Samuel chapter number 22. They had to come... To the end of themselves. And I will say that. Say this. It's a very difficult thing to do. To come to the end of ourselves. There's something about our comfort zone. And sometimes. You know. There are. There are. I've known many people. That God wants to use. In a major way. But they just won't allow God. To put them out of their comfort zone. They choose to be shy, reserved, and awkward, mechanical, if you will. I've known teachers that could be fabulous Sunday school teachers, but they just won't throw themselves into the lesson. They won't be silly. They won't be goofy. They won't do whatever needs to be done in order to minister to those kids. They have to be, you know, kind of rigid because they just won't They won't commit themselves. They won't come to the end of themselves. 1 Samuel 22 verse number 2, and everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him, unto David and became, and he became captain over them and there were with him about 400 men. You got David fleeing from King Saul, going all over the place, and David's out there hiding from Saul. Evidently, these mighty men that were in debt and discontent and in distress, they they knew where David was, and so they went out to be with him and to follow him. In order for them to do that, they had to come to the end of themselves. I read a little brief story about Rudyard Kipling, the great author and poet, how that he was traveling by ship one time, and on that ship was General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Back in those days, this was a great organization, and it was a gospel-preaching, witnessing organization. And you know, sometimes when we think of Salvation Army, we think about the annoying bell ringers trying to get money out of us when we go in and out of Walmart, right? That may not have sounded very nice, the, the annoying, but I think when I said it, I saw a lot of heads nod like that. Well, back in the day, the Salvation Army, they would have groups together and they would, they would clang tambourines and make noise in order to get, to draw people in, to get their attention so that they could preach the gospel to them. And Rudyard Kipling, being a very distinguished Englishman, he saw this going on and he had disdain for it. And, you know, he's just muttering and, you know, a bunch of fools, a bunch of re- religious zealots. And on this, this uh, ship, this, it wasn't a cruise, but while he's on the ship with um General Booth, he got to know him a little bit better. And they kind of started a friendship and an acquaintance. And in the process of this conversation, he made a statement to William Booth. He said, you know, I respect you. I like everything about you. But really, these tambourines and all of this that's going on, really, you, you need to change that. That's That's a bunch of nonsense. And you know what William Booth said to him? He said... He said, sir, he said, I would learn to stand on my head and beat tambourines with my feet if I could get one soul to listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's zeal without pride, without self-consciousness. That's a man who has come to the end of himself. You know, God will use uncomfortable circumstances... To help us see things that we wouldn't otherwise see. These men were going through uncomfortable circumstances. Distress, debt, discontentment. All made them willing to get out of their comfort zone and make a change. But folks, ultimately, ultimately they had to recognize that David was God's anointed. If it was just debt, distress, and discontentment, and they didn't truly believe that David was anointed to be king, then it would have been a short-lived relationship with King David. I guarantee you, when David went after the Philistines or fled from Saul, those 400 that went out to meet him, they would be dropping like flies when the going gets tough. And listen, following David, especially in those early years, was not a pleasant thing. They had to... Listen, God will get you to the end of yourself, but uh, there's got to be more in substance than just your uncomfortable circumstances. I think about Barnabas and Saul. And this is in light of something that I said a little bit earlier Barnabas and Saul were already doing the work in Antioch before the church sent them on their first missionary journey. They didn't, you know, Paul and and Barnabas didn't become missionaries when they were sent out from Antioch. They already were missionaries, and the church at Antioch just recognized that, hey, you can do more by us sending you out to other people's And David's mighty men, it started with God getting their attention, with them being uncomfortable. That got them pointed in the right direction, but it took a whole lot more. It took a relationship and a trust in King David to keep them there. They had to come to the end of themselves. If you're going to have zeal for God, you're going to have to come to the end of yourself. Secondly, look at 1 Samuel chapter 23 and verse number 2. They had to believe in something higher than themselves. Look at verse number 2. It says, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines and save Keilah. And David's men said unto him, Understandably so, they said, behold, we be afraid here in Judah. I mean, they're afraid of Saul, but at least they're in among their own people, among friendly people other than Saul and his men. And they said, we're in, in we're afraid in Judah. How much more than if we come to Keilah against the armies, plural, of the Philistines? There might have been 400 of them, but the armies of the Philistines, they knew we're, we're outnumbered. And so their, their, their initial thought is, are you sure, David? Are you, are you crazy? We're, we're, it's bad enough hiding from Saul here in Judah, but you're wanting us to go out and fight against these, these armies that are, they're, this is not very good odds. Verse number four, then David inquired of the Lord yet again, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into thine hand. At some point, they had to recognize that there was something going on here than just their changing circumstances because of their debt, distress, and discouragement, and all of those things. They recognized David was anointed by God as king, but then it's one thing to recognize it, it's another thing for that recognition to be put to the test. If David's anointed by God to be king, then David's going to make some leadership decisions that they didn't fully understand or agree with, but they had to see beyond that in order to have that zeal. Someone said, you can't sweep people off their feet if you can't be swept off your own. Back years ago, when my wife and I first got married, I worked at Ingalls Warehouse in Black Mountain. Had a good job, had a great shift, but it was kind of one of these jobs where it just, I pretty much maxed out. I wasn't, there wasn't anywhere else to go. Uh, I would end up training my own supervisors on several occasions, but I would always be passed up for that promotion. Why? Because and, and, And it was pretty obvious to me. It was because I didn't go hang out socially with some of the people that were supervisors. You know, they'd go hang out at the bar, and they'd play basketball, and they'd talk about all of their drinking and different things. And it's like I wasn't part of that. It was painfully obvious that I was pretty much as a as a, a, a foreman. That's as far as I was going, and so I, I was working in the office one day. And the um, the office they were purchasing a brand new photocopier. And I didn't grow up in an office environment. I grew up in an agricultural environment. But the the guy from this photocopier company came and demonstrated this photocopier. And I'm watching, and he's showing how that he could make certain parts of the copy red and certain parts of the copy blue. He could enter in all of these little coordinates, and he could erase part of this copy, and he would print stuff out. And he even took an original that, if you've ever used a copier, they have these document feeders where you put it in the tray, and it just sucks it in there, and then makes the copy. He took one of those originals and he wadded it up and crinkled it up and then just spread it back out. And he loaded it in that document feeder and everybody's thinking, oh, it's going to jam up. And he pushed the button and it ran it right through there and it made a perfect copy. I know nothing about copiers, but I'm going, wow. I was so impressed and this guy, this guy was a professional salesman. He wasn't being all salesy and icky and he was just, he, he knew his, his product. He demonstrated it, got everybody excited. I got so excited about it that I went down to his company and got an appointment with the owner of the company and said, I want to sell your copiers. Well, what kind of experience do you have? None. (laughs) And and he gave me some time and he talked to me a little bit about it. And you know what? I he he didn't hire me. And so my job's still kind of a dead end job and it's still on my mind. And so about I don't know, three or four or five months later, I go and I knock I go in there and I show up and I get a meeting with him and he says he and, and he starts talking to me and he says, All right. I'll hire you. I wasn't expecting that. No way, no how. I think he saw my persistence. He saw my zeal and he said, all right, you've never sold before. I can teach you how to see, how to sell. And so I went home, our little apartment and I told my wife, I'm quitting my job at the warehouse and I'm going to go sell copiers. I think she started crying. <laughs> that was a little bit later after it sunk in. I'm like, she's not near as excited about this as I am. And, and, and so she says to me, she says, she says, you couldn't sell ice cubes to Eskimos. <laughs> I thought about it and I go, why would they want them? Well, we got through it, and I took the job, and you know what it, it it worked out just fine. it worked out great, and you know what? It was one of these jobs that it gave me some experience that really, in all honesty, God knew what he was doing because that helped me in my ministry more than than a lot of different things, and I, I don't even have time to go into that. But but you know what I had to do. I had to believe in something that was higher than me. I didn't think I I, I didn't know if I could sell. I was scared. But it's like I, I want to do this. I want to give it a shot, and I was willing to take that chance. And God blessed, and I was able to figure it out. I had to work hard. And uh, sometimes I'd have a good month, and the sales manager would say, "How do you do it?" And I'd I don't know, I knock on a lot of doors and I talk to a lot of people and, and, you know, ask enough people, you want to buy my copier? And some of them say yes. And you endure some hardness of, you know, knocking on somebody's door and giving them a business card and you can just see, you know, the receptionist, oh, great, another one of them. And you just have to figure, hey, that's all right, I didn't come here to make a friend, I came here to sell a copier. I did a demonstration one time and showed him the copier. I wasn't as good as the guy that sold me on him, but I did a demonstration. And afterward, the, the the owner said said Why should I buy your copier, Randy?" And I said, "Because I need the commission. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're supposed to give them all of this. You know, you know." And he goes, "I respect that. I'll buy it." <laughs> you tell your sales manager that, and they go, "You said what?" <clears throat> But you know what, Um, I I thought about this and and I thought about these mighty men and it it says right here, they said, we're afraid here in Judah, how much more if we go against Keilah? You know, fear turns a person into a cynic or a critic. And and the truth of the matter is, is any fool can make a negative prediction and end up being right part of the time. We're living in a sin-cursed world. And let's face it, most stuff doesn't work out. Right? Because it's just anything that we do, there's resistance and, and, and problems and failures and weakness and all of those things. And so it's easy to predict that something's not going to turn out right. Any fool can do that. And, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? I look at America and how wicked we've become and how most churches are apostate or in the process of becoming apostate. The same could be said of God's kingdom during this time. But David's men were able to see beyond it. They kept their eyes on David. Brothers and sisters, no matter what's going on in our country, no matter what's going on around us, We've got to look past it and get our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ because that's the only source of lasting zeal. Number three, my last point, 1 Samuel chapter number 24. They were willing to place confidence in God's man. Chapter 24 and verse number 1, and it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 300,000 men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepcoats by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemies into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. I I can only put myself... In the shoes of one of these 400 men. And you know, maybe the the three mighty men, they already had more confidence in David. Perhaps they knew him better than others. But of those 400 men, I guarantee you, number 399 and 400, they probably weren't as close to David. And I guarantee you, they're having to flee from cave to cave. They're going, I mean, they're going without food at times. I guarantee you their clothes are wearing out, they're cold, they're tired, they're weary, they just, they just want this to be over with Saul. And here they have their opportunity to get rid of Saul, and I guarantee you once Saul's dead, nobody else is gonna be chasing after David. Here's our opportunity. We slay him, tomorrow we're eating, we're eating good. I mean we come out of this cold dingy cave and we can be out in the sunlight and stop having to hide and hide in the shadows and be sneaky all that that had to have been tough on those men when David said no he's the lord's anointed and by the way David was 100% right about that and and let me just say this to you when we start taking even righteous men, David would have been totally I mean, justified to slay Saul. Saul was wrong. David was right. But I want you to see how that David was able to see past who's right and keep his focus on what is right. And by the way, that's what a good leader will always do. He won't make it about him. He won't make it about who's right. He'll make it about what's right. And so these men had to place confidence that David knew what he was talking about. And that required some patience. That required some additional suffering. This had to have caused great confusion. But you know what? Only a king who has truly been anointed by God would understand what David understood about Saul. David knew that he didn't become king because he slew Goliath. David knew that God anointed him king, and it was because of God. The same went for Saul. David's like, I didn't anoint him king, so I don't have the, it's not my place to take him out. And you know, Saul continued, if I understand my Bible chronology, God fired Saul 17 years before he killed him. Seventeen years, that's a long time. But David endured it patiently because he was indeed God's man. Now, there were additional bumps in the road. Remember when David had a lapse of faith and he started following the Philistines and he led all of his men with him? And then while he's over there trying to go to battle with the Philistines instead of against the Philistines... The Amalekites come in and they raid Ziklag where all of their wives and children and all of their stuff is. And so they come back and Ziklag's burned up with fire and everybody's gone. And all of these men that were following David, they got they got distressed and they got so discouraged that they're all sitting around in their little disgruntled huddles saying, you know what, I, I'm tired of this guy you know what, we didn't even have to be here. If he would have just killed Saul, then we wouldn't be in this position. And it's like now this thing with the Philistines. Why do we keep following this guy? Let's just stone him. Let's just kill him and we won't have to worry. We lost our wives. We lost our children. I'm done. But you know what? In that emotional time period, God helped them, and they got past their emotions, and David did the right thing. He inquired of the Lord, and the Lord told him, go get your stuff. I made sure, you know, aren't you glad that sometimes when you make mistakes that God's got your back, and you can still recover? Now, it wasn't easy. They had to go and fight another battle when they were hungry and thirsty and tired, But they went and they did it and God took care of it in his time. And after the man of God was right, I guarantee you that time that, hey, one time, early in the day, they're talking about killing David. And by the end of the day, they're going, wow, don't I feel like an idiot? And you know what? God will take that stumbling stone and turn it into a building block if we'll just do right, even when our emotions are telling us to do the wrong thing. Beware of emotional fallout from life circumstances, discouragement, depression, grief, and, you know, even joy. Even joy can get us off track if we just Simply focus on our feelings and not the principles. In conclusion, every man is enthusiastic at times. One man has enthusiasm for 30 minutes. Another has it for 30 days. But it is the man who has it for 30 years that makes a success in life. We've all seen campfires that are about to burn out where the glow of those coals just eventually dies out and all we see is just what looks like very dead, dry, gray ash. And it's time to stoke the fire. But you know, if you take a fire that's in that condition and you just start throwing logs on it, more often than not you end up smothering the coals that are already there. So what do you have to do? You have to stir up those coals a little bit. Get some oxygen down where those embers are still smoldering. Get that oxygen in there, stir up the coals, and then throw some more fuel on the fire. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verse number 6, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee, by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of, a lo- and of love and of a sound mind. We need to stir up that zeal that God has put in us. John Trapp talked about zeal. And you know, we've already talked about misguided zeal. And uh, you know, he, John Trapp made a, a pretty interesting statement. He says... But as in falling forward, is nothing so much danger as backward. You know, you can go zealous after the right thing, and you may end up falling. But what he's saying is, you're better off to fall forward than to fall backward. He said, so the zealot, though not so discreet, is better than the apostate. You're better off to be zealous and maybe just a little bit off track and fall forward than to be apostate. I've said this my entire ministry. It's a whole lot better to rein somebody in that's going too fast zealously forward. It's a whole lot easier to rein somebody in than it is to light a fire under their backside. Howbeit zeal should eat us up. But not eat up our wisdom, nor should pride eat up our zeal. Our prayer this morning should be, God, make us want to want to. In Titus chapter 2, verse number 14, the scripture says, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. When we lose our zeal. Then we defeat one of the main purposes. For which Christ saved us. So that we can be zealous. Of good works. Folks I've used David's three mighty men. As an appeal for our zeal. We need to shake ourselves up. We need to allow God to stir up. That gift that is in us. We need to be like these mighty men and come to the end of ourself. Believe in something that is higher than us. And ultimately, believe in God's man. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in the man that's following the Lord Jesus Christ. Get outside of yourself and outside of your comfort zone. And quit letting COVID be an excuse. Quit letting anything and everything be an excuse. We know what we're supposed to do. We've just got to start doing it. Let's be zealous for good works as children of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, uh, I pray that you would stir our hearts here this morning. Out of our complacency, our laziness, our apathy... Lord, there's a whole world out there that's lost without Christ. Lord, we've got children here in this church that they need to see that God is real. And God, if we are not uh, energetic and enthusiastic and excited about what God is doing, then, Lord, no matter what we say, Lord, it won't come across as sincere. I pray, Father, that you would stir our hearts And shake us up for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Remain seated. The pianist plays softly on the piano. If you'd like to come to the altar and pray. The invitation is open. Perhaps you'd like to just pray right where you're at. An appeal for zeal. But a lacking thing. Godly, righteous zeal among God's people. The thing about what Jesus said, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? Or will he just find a bunch of his children just kind of trying to find what What's the bare minimum that I can get away with and not look too bad or not feel too bad? stand to our feet. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. I'd like to ask Brother Ralph Harding if you would close us in prayer. When he's finished praying, then you are dismissed. God bless you. Brother Ralph.